Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted forty days and forty nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. This is the word of the Lord. Here at Boston Avenue, for some years now, we've tried to emphasize the importance of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Last November, when we were confirming our sixth graders, who had just gone through four months of reviewing what they had learned so far about God, about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about sin, about salvation, etc. And now we're professing their own faith at the altar. As I laid hand on each one of them, the Lord confirm you in the faith and fellowship of all true disciples of Jesus Christ. We heard a chime high up above the ceiling. A chime that reminded us the Holy Spirit is at this very moment whispering to this child's innermost heart, You are my daughter. I am so pleased with what you've done today. You are my son. I am so pleased with what you've done today. This afternoon, 6 o'clock, I will be your chief celebrant when we come to that part of the service when I say, Take, eat, This is my body broken for you. You will hear a chime. Take, drink, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you. You will hear a chime. That the Holy Spirit of God has come to the table and waits for you to come and meet him there. Jesus had such an experience. Matthew says when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit of God said to him, You are my son, my beloved. I'm really pleased with you. And immediately that whisperer led him into the desert where he was tempted. All right, let's remind ourselves of something very important here. When we deal with Matthew's gospel, we are convinced that Matthew has in front of him three scrolls. He has the scroll of Mark written before Matthew wrote, shorter, briefer, more about what Jesus did next. But we can tell he's looking at Mark's gospel because sometimes he copies entire paragraphs without differing even one word. We know that he has in front of him the Greek translation of the Old Testament. After the time of Alexander the Great, there came a time when more Jews could speak, read and write Greek than could speak, read and write Hebrew. And so their scriptures were translated into the Septuagint, it was called. And we can tell that Matthew has that in front of him because when he quotes from the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament to us, he quotes 
verbatim, word for word. He's not translating himself from the Hebrew. If he were, he would differ from time to time. No, they're word for word right out of the Septuagint. We know that he also has in front of him a scroll that the German scholars first began calling the quella, the source. Matthew had it. Luke had it. They have long passages, mostly teaching material, mostly parable, where they do not differ even one word in the Greek. And so Matthew has Mark's gospel, the Septuagint, and the Quella, and he's cutting and pasting. Cutting and pasting. What should go here? What should go here? To tell this story in the most convincing, meaningful way. Today's passage, we are convinced that Matthew has in front of him Deuteronomy from the Septuagint, chapters 5, 6, and 7. He's thinking about the Israelites in the wilderness. In this passage in Deuteronomy, Moses is saying to the people, God told me that he has led you 40 years in the wilderness to see whether or not you would obey him. And now he's about to help you cross the river. And Matthew is asking, the Israelites didn't always get it right. Will Jesus always get it right? And so first he begins by reminding us that Jesus really was flesh and blood. He said for 40 days and nights he fasted, and when they were up, he was famished. Later we would say Jesus was very man, a very man, as surely as he was very God, a very God. And that once more Jesus is being placed in a position where he will be tested as to whether he will do it God's way or not. A month ago, I was in Dallas on a Friday afternoon and evening and most of Saturday. When my meeting was over there, I was back at Love Field waiting for my plane. I picked up a Dallas morning news and began to read. I got over to page six and here was a headline. Father of gene therapy sentenced. That caught my attention. The father of gene therapy, the man who believed that when we are sick, our genes are not just right. That we should be able to get to the point where we can tell if we have a bad gene and we should be able to splice into that and fix it somehow. A professor at the medical school, University of Southern California, had molested a little girl for four years the daughter of an employee he had molested from the time she was 10 until she was 14. He had finally been found out and was sentenced to 14 years. Now, before you think, well, Californians are weird, let me tell you that this man is a Tulsan. He went to Central High School. William French Anderson now had this prestigious chair in the medical school at the University of Southern California. He molested a child for four years. Just before the judge handed down the sentence, he asked if he had anything to say, and this is what he said. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. There was just something terribly evil in me. And the Bible says there's the potential for something terribly evil in all of us. And if Jesus was really like us, 
then the potential for something terribly evil was in him too. Would he do the evil or would he do the good? That's what this passage is all about. Number two, what was the testing in the desert for the Israelites? They ran out of food. And so they began to mumble and complain. We had it better than this in Egypt. How could you lead us out into this desert where there's nothing to eat? And God provided manna and quail. But he also reminded them, people do not live by bread alone. Because even if you have plenty of bread, you finally die. And you either really lived by every word that comes from the mouth of God, or you didn't. Eleven days ago, we had Ash Wednesday. It was Wednesday, of course, and so it was my day to make hospitals. I started way out south at South Crest. When I got to St. Francis, it was still early in the morning. I hurried down to the chaplain's office to see if we'd had any new admits from Boston Avenue, and I ran into Father Casey. Father Casey was a Navy chaplain for many, many years, then came to St. Francis Hospital when he retired from the Navy and was chaplain there for a number of years. He's retired now. But I saw him coming down the hall, and the first thing I noticed, he had the ashes on his forehead. And so I chatted with him about that a minute. After I'd made our calls at St. Francis, I came on over to St. John's Hospital, and on two different floors, I ran into two different nuns, and each of them already had her ashes, the cross mark on her forehead. At 12.05, Gail and I were in our places here, and the place we'd chosen to sit, we ended up right in front of Dr. Bill Crowell, when we knelt at the altar and Bill, with his thumb, made that black cross on our foreheads and said to each of us, From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. That's how simple it is. From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. Angela O'Donnell has written a little poem about Ash Wednesday. I want you to notice a few key words. One is the word, the fall. Okay, all humans other than one have fallen, all of us. The other word she mentions is, is turn. Just remember that the Hebrew word for repentance means not only being sorry, but it's a hunger to be turned and sent in a better direction. Okay, with that in mind, listen to her. Now, 40 winters have besieged this brow that bears the mark of ashes once again. It shall a furrows yielding to time's plow as on command. I turn and turn again. With every year, the mark goes deeper still and stays there longer than the year before, reminding me, despite my flesh's will, there will come a spring when I'll be marked no more. Yet still I bow and part my graying hair to make way for the dust that makes us all. The mortal touch, the cross traced in the air, the voice that tells me to regard the fall that each of us must know before we rise and raise unwrinkled brows to greet the eyes of God. Number three. He took him to the pinnacle of the temple and said, Why don't you throw yourself down? You know it is written, His angel shall bear him up so that he not dash his foot against a stone. Would Jesus go that way? And he quotes 
Remember, Matthew's looking right there at the Septuagint, Deuteronomy 5, 6, and 7. What happened to the Israelites? They were still murmuring, still complaining. No food, no water. No food, no water. Do you not care for us? And Moses got so exasperated with them, he struck a rock in anger and water poured out. And God said, now, don't ever do that to me again. Ever. And Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Meaning, do not question the heart of God. No matter what, don't question the heart of God. Just before the Academy Awards last weekend, I'd read another article in the Wall Street Journal. My favorite movie reviewer in the Wall Street Journal is Joel Morgenstern because he sees movies the way I see them. When he tells me what's going to happen in a movie and what it means, I end up agreeing with him almost every time. And he was making one last plea, even though he knew all the ballots were in by that time, for what he considered the movie of the year. And he thought the best movie produced last year was Little Miss Sunshine. That was his favorite. And in the article he said, in any good movie, there will be a scene that changes your perspective on everything. In every good movie, there's that scene that changes your perspective on everything. Now, those of you who have seen the movie remember, it's a story about a little girl who wants to enter a beauty contest out in California. And by same, some strange mix of circumstance, she and her family get in an old beat-up van and start off to California. This is a truly dysfunctional family. On the way, Grandpa gets very sick. They stop at a hospital. He dies. While they're in this hospital, little Olive, the one who wants to enter the contest, is picking up brochures, just brochures and things that are handouts. And when they get back in the van, she starts reading these little brochures. Now, older brother Dwayne wants to be a fighter pilot. So badly does he want to be a fighter pilot, he's decided he will not speak another word until the Air Force Academy sends him acceptance to the academy. So he's not talking. And little Olive is giving him these tests that she's picked up in the lobby of the hospital. And one of them is an eye test. And it includes a test for color blindness. You've had those tests. In this particular one, there's a letter A in dots in red, surrounded by dots that are green. If you can distinguish green from red, you can see the A very well. Dwayne cannot see it. He cannot read the letter. And so the crazy old uncle says, uh-huh, you can never be a fighter pilot. You can't be a fighter pilot if you're colorblind. And this teenage boy goes berserk. He starts beating on things, screaming, yelling, running. They pull the old van off to the side of the road, and he jumps out and starts running down the side of the hill. And the daddy says to the mother, say something to him. And she says a few things, and nothing seems to faze them. And suddenly they realize that little Olive has gotten out of the van, and she's just going down the hill. And when she gets down there to him, she just sits down right beside him, doesn't say a word. And then she puts her arm around his shoulder. And they just sit there, side by side, she silently weeping. And Joel Morgenstern said, the family changed. That was the moment when this precious child 
put her arm around him and sat there with him and would have sat there as long as he wanted to cry. Matthew is saying, do not question the heart of God. God says, if things are not going well for you, trust me, I will finally make all things right. Number four. This tester, this tempter, devil takes him up onto a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, if you will bow down to me, some translations say worship me. But it's a very special word. It's a word Matthew's already used when he talked about those magi. Remember the magi? Those men coming on camels, searching for royalty because a star had somehow been suspended over a certain place. Saw Mary's baby. Were convinced he was the new king of the Jews. They offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh and they paid homage to him. It's the same word. They bowed down with their foreheads touching the ground right in front of him. Matthew's looking at the Septuagint. And here in Deuteronomy it says, Hear, O Israel, the Aye, Asher Aye, the I am who I am, is the only true Elohim, the only true God. You must have no other God but him. You must pay homage only to him. Will Jesus do that? That's the question. Will he do that? Pay homage only to the one true God. Let me illustrate. I read earlier this week that somebody found an old kinescope of the only perfect game ever pitched in a World Series. I remember that game. I was just a teenager in 1956 when the Yanks and the Dodgers were playing again. Don Larson pitched a perfect game. There have been 101 World Series, more than 500 games supposedly played between the two best teams in the world that year. There's been only one perfect game. It was in the fall of 1956. Don Larson pitched that game. 27 batters up, 27 batters down. Most baseball folk are superstitious. Vin Scully announcing for the Dodgers, Mel Allen for the Yanks. And they tried to give the listeners clues by saying, wow, the only base runners we've had today are Yankees. But they never said he's got a perfect game going. Don Larson, Yogi Berra were brought in to see this old kinescope. And, and Larson said, everybody was superstitious but me. Uh, I'd get three runners out. I'd go in the dugout, sit down by Mickey Mantle. He'd get up and go get a drink of water. I'd sit down by Yogi, he'd get up and go straighten his mitt or, or put his, uh, his chest protector somewhere. I'd sit down by another one, he'd get up and go start swinging his bat or rosining around the handle. Nobody would talk to me. And then it was over. Don Larson said, the most important decision I made that day was to trust my catcher. I was pitching only every fourth day. Yogi was seeing these batters four times as often as I did. And I figured Yogi knew who needed a fastball, who needed a curve, who needed a changeup, who needed a slider, whether they could hit an outside pitch, inside pitch, high pitch, low pitch. I decided I would trust Yogi. And this announcer said, so how many times did you shake him off? And he said, 
God wants. He called them. I threw them. We won.